Welcome to another edition of Lockdown Football. Will Downing with you alongside my fellow commentators Mark Rodden, Dimitros Juli and Stefan Shawnee. We begin today with the death of Liverpool, Ireland and broadcasting legend Michael Robinson at the age of 61. Born in Leicester, he started with Preston and Manchester City before really making his name at Brighton under Jimmy Melia. Promotion followed by that dramatic 1983 FA Cup final. The 2-2 draw against Manchester United. They almost won it in the last minute. The Smith must score final. Even though they lost the replay 4-0, the squad were just actually grateful they got to play at Wembley again. Yet Robinson wouldn't be done with the Twin Towers. A year later with Liverpool, he won the League Cup after a replay against Everton. That replay at Main Road. Then the League Championship and after coming off the bench of the Stadio Olimpico, the European Cup, a penalty shootout win over Roma. But the following winter, after mainly being a substitute, including for the Intercontinental Cup win, he was sold to up-and-coming Queen's Park Rangers and reached Wembley again in 1986, losing the League Cup final 3-0 to the Oxford United of Aldridge, Houghton and Dave Langan. His Ireland career wrapped up the same season, playing in two of Jack Charlton's first three games as Ireland boss against Wales and Czechoslovakia, the latter game in a 3 team tournament in Iceland that Ireland actually won outright but he never played for Ireland again as a more direct approach was successfully adopted by Charlton 24 games four goals for his country with no European football for English clubs in that era like so many Spain came calling for Robinson despite at first not being able to speak the language at all three seasons with unfashionable Osasuna saw them finish as high as fifth in the Primera but injury cut his career short at the age of 30 so then what Within a year, he was commentating on the World Cup for Spanish national radio. He never looked back and even appeared in the Spanish-language version of Shrek 2. We'll hear shortly from his long-term colleague at Canal Plus, Gabby Ruiz, who worked alongside him for 23 years. But first, a long-term servant of Sky Sports coverage of Spanish football, Rob Palmer. You knew him quite well, Rob. Yeah, I was blessed. We studied covering Spanish football league, I think it was about 1996, and the first couple of calls I made to people over there was one Bobby Robson, who I remarkably got straight through to when he was Barcelona manager, uh, and I had a couple of meals and meetings with him when when Bobby was kind of... uh, in oblivion, if you like, in footballing terms. And the second one was Michael Robinson, who I'd heard had become a big figure over in Spain. Uh, went over, Michael received us, we had lunch. It lasted about six hours. And I got a complete education in Spanish from football and, and life in general, actually, from Michael then. So my, my kind of um, my relationship and friendship, uh, acquaintanceship, goes back to, to the mid-90s. And whenever we went over to do a Clásico or to do a big game, or there was a, a major occurrence like... Um, David Beckham signing for, for Real Madrid, for example, or Steve McManaman when he went to Real Madrid, then Michael Robinson would be always one of the first ports of call. You'd, you'd always give us a wonderful interview, and then you get a complete education in Spanish football, life and politics beyond from it. He was an incredible man. It's remarkable. I, like, I only met him maybe once or twice. We were working together in Ireland for Satanta. He came over for the Champions League when his channel had lost rights, I think, for a couple of seasons. And on air, it was incredible. It was just this unbelievable flow of information about everything that was happening, not just on the pitch, but behind the scenes and seasons of it. Like, the knowledge of the man was astonishing. Yeah, he's a very deep-thinking man. I mean, he's poetic. His control of English is remarkable. If If you Google him and look at some of the interviews that he gave in time, he was outspoken. He called some of our English presenters and commentators Mary Poppins in comparison to what he did over in Spain. He, he was a great linguist, but they did tell us in Spain that he spoke uh, he spoke Spanish like Ozzy Ardiles speaks English, uh, and that he had his own kind of lexicon of words as well. 
Um, and, he, and he was more than a football commentator. We see a football commentator here as someone like Gary Neville on Sky or maybe Gary Lineker presenting. Um, but he was everything. He, he actually, he was the director of the show. He was the pro executive producer of the show. He was the ideas man. He was the presenter. He was the co-commentator. And then he, he branched out into things. There was an equivalent of The Simpsons on Spanish television for a while. He was the brains behind that. His big pal was Seve Ballesteros. They came up with the Seve Ballesteros trophy. Um, we went over one year to interview him when, when, was when Figo had signed from Barcelona to Real Madrid. The whole world was talking about it, speculating about it. Uh, they wanted to grow their global, global appeal at Real Madrid. And that week, Michael actually managed to get us at Sky Sports an interview with not only Luis Figo, the only interview he did anywhere, but also Florent uh, Florentino Perez as well, the Real Madrid president. His links were unbelievable. If you've seen the Spanish newspapers this week, it has been front page, back page and middle page. Very sad news. I mean, I don't think we realise just over here how big he was in Spain. I don't know if there's ever been an equivalent, maybe Gary Lineker at the moment. But as you say, he just went above that because literally everybody knew him. He was the face of the most popular sport. Yeah, I, I guess if you look at the kind of the the unique appeal of Piers Morgan uh, and the effect that he's had in the UK and that he's bigger than a TV personality and maybe Gary Lineker and Gary Neville and roll them all into one. Uh, and I know that Gary Neville's got his own kind of media companies as well. But Michael Robinson was just more than that. He, he was absolutely giant. And Michael was never bored of telling you that the, the time he came out of a restaurant um, and you know, he and Seve Ballesteros, and there are half a dozen autograph hunters. Only one asked for Seve's autograph, and, and five of them asked for Michael's. And it's a story that's done the round. Uh, Graham Sunes was telling it this week, but uh, I, I saw it with my own eyes. The, the first time we went to interview Michael, we, we met him briefly for lunch, and then he said, "Come after the show, after the game, to uh, to see us in this particular five-star hotel about ten thirty, eleven o'clock at night." So what we thought we'd do, we set the camera up to show what a global appeal he had, and the flashlights were there, and the photographers, and the concierge was there. Michael pulled up in his chauffeur-driven car, but he was in such a mood that he literally put his hand on the camera, went past us, flew past the concierge, straight into the bar, and had a goldfish bowl-sized gin and tonic because they dared to stop him mid-sentence on the show that he was directing and presenting because they had to go to the news. I think at eleven o'clock, um, and we kind of, and then he regaled us with stories. I think oh, Jerry Armstrong was with us till about four thirty in the morning. And that was the first time I genuinely met this guy. But he, honestly, you, you cannot, you, somebody will, somebody will write a book. I don't have the words to find to describe him. And I was in his company scores of times, but I would love to work for the guy. And the people that worked with me had his own team that he took with him from various production companies from Canal Plus. And then when they lost the rights, started up his own company um, and his own kind of documentary series. And he took the same staff with him. He's very loyal but very demanding as well. And in TV terms, he was like an Alex Ferguson-type character. He'd sit them all down and say, you've got an idea, not a good one. You've got an idea, good, go work on that. You got to go. And he wouldn't let people leave the room until they'd had a brilliant idea. Yeah, How, how did it come about, the, the whole broadcasting career? Because he'd been with Osasuna for the last three seasons of his career. He, his career ended early through injury in his early 30s. And then within a year, he was commentating in the World Cup on Spanish radio. Yeah, he went over to Osasuna. To, to, he said he didn't even know where Osasuna was. He looked for it on a map. Of course, Osasuna's in Pamplona, up in the Basque country. Um, so he, he went over there. He, he spoke very little Spanish. He was invited to do some Spanish football commentary. And he said he only knew 100 words in Spanish, 90 of which were swear words. Um, but he got away with it. He told me once as well, he, he did a summer on Eurosport and one of the, the championships. They liked what he did. He saw the way they were doing it. But Michael being Michael, he thought that he could improve upon it. 
And then he, he'd seen the likes of Football Focus and on the ball in the UK when he was a footballer in his days. And he was a big fan. And I'm sure he had something to do with Badil and Skinner and fantasy football as well. And he came up with this idea for a show called Dies Después and then Dies Antes, the day before and the day after. Uh, and the Monday night show in particular was a mixture of on the ball and Saint and Greavesy when they had those quirky interviews and features that they used to do uh, and football focus when they you know send the reporter out and do something on a town but it'd be, it'd be a side issue uh, and also fancy football which would look uh, look a, take a kind of comedic view at football as well um, I, I remember one game in particular they microphoned up a, a linesman and the referee had given the goal and the linesman kept his flag up and, and you, you saw the referee go over to the linesman and going Let's call him Will. You better get this right, Will, because if you have swear word, swear word, got this wrong, mine and your career on the line here. Put your flag down. No, I'm not. And Michael had actually, just by pure chance, microphone the linesman, and, and he had this, and it, it just made like a 10-minute segment. The referee and the, and the linesman arguing there, and it was the kind of television that we don't really see, well, these days, or probably haven't seen before. Yeah, and as well as all the InVision stuff, he was still a co-commentator as well. He was commentating on the last week of the Champions League that we had. He was at Anfield for Liverpool against Atletico Madrid when, you know, by that stage, he must probably have been quite seriously ill, I guess. Yeah, I think sadly, I think it was about two years ago that uh, Michael announced on, on radio, live on radio, typical of him, uh, that he was terminally ill um, and he was going to make the most of the time that he had left. Um, I haven't seen him in the last two years since he has been. And he had an illness before that as well. Uh, and we're aware and his public profile did diminish a little bit, as obviously had to look after whatever health that he had. But I think it is just fitting that he came back to, to Liverpool to do the game on Atletico Madrid, the final game, before we had the lockdown uh, and he, he only had was it a season at Liverpool where he was basically the uh, alternative to Rush and Dalglish in the glorious season when they won three trophies he came on and replaced Kenny Dalglish in the European Cup final um, and he played for Man City he played he's a Preston boy he came from Blackpool he played for Osasuna he played for Manchester City he had a great run with Brighton but I think he associated associated himself more with Liverpool Football Club than anywhere else. So I think it was fitting that his his final act as a TV personality and as a football person was at the glorious Anfield Stadium. I mean, there's no doubt, I guess, in England and Ireland, obviously, for whom he played a lot of times until Jack Charlton took over and in Spain, he's going to be remembered for a long time. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he, he, he touches absolutely everywhere. He was a proud Lancastrian. They loved him on Merseyside because he played for Liverpool Football Club. He always claimed, I know there's an interview with Sid Lowe this week, that the, the Guardian columnist where Sid was saying that in an interview with him once, he claimed that though he, his ancestors went back to Cork in Ireland, he felt that they were, um, he had a background, his roots were that those with the bit of the Spanish Armada that had uh, landed on the beaches in Ireland and had settled there. And he, he hadn't managed to get, take his family tree back that far. But he was convinced that he was Spanish down at heart and convinced he came from, from Celta, which is down there in southern Spain, where he had no association with. But when the club was struggling, he went in there and he actually bought some shares and helped financially save them as well. So he felt he was going back a couple of centuries in time. But if you knew Michael, you would accept that as perfectly normal for him. Nice one, Rob. Thanks for that. We'll catch you again. Uh, Demetrio, in terms of Spanish football on TV, in terms of Spanish TV, Michael Robinson was very much the man. Well, yes, especially considering we're talking here about someone who goes to a different country and uh, hardly knows any language. And he was picking it up, of course, from his teammates. And those were funny stories that he was telling about those times. But then when he started working... As a commentator first and then a host of one of the best ever football shows in the history of uh, the football television, Lea Después, he became 
a true legend in Spain. And it's just amazing. We're talking here about uh, an Englishman because well, they, they refer to him as Englishman. He was born in Leicester. And even though he had Irish grandparents, so I understand, they, 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 he called himself El Inglés, of course, in, in Spain. And what he did was absolutely astonishing because he was good as a commentator, right? He was good as a presenter. And in 2007, he started his own program called Informe Robinson. And it was just stories, you know, stories of different people from, from the world of sports, not only about victories, but also about defeats. And I can tell you, you can still find him on YouTube, especially if you do speak Spanish. You can watch him again and again. And so many of them just make you cry because it was such a brilliant job. And as a presenter, he didn't interfere much, but people opened doors to him. Rafa Nadal was in the very bad spell of his career, and he invited him in, and he spoke to him as if it was someone very close. And people really didn't understand how could a professional player be so open about his problems at the time. And it was happening over and over again, and he was inviting people from the world of sport to go and work in television. That's how he discovered Raul Ruiz, who played football mostly in the second division in Spain. And together they did another very interesting show that was called Chaos FC. So what they would do, they would find a team in some of the regional leagues in Spain, really low level, and then they would go spend a week with them. Usually a team would have to be really, really bad to be picked for that project. So they would train them. They would invite a former player or a current manager from the top division to give them some talks, uh, to prepare them for the game during uh, that week. And again, they were filming so many stories. Uh, and when he passed away, it just, you, you can't really describe how many people especially from the world of politics as well, you know, those who were growing up watching him, an Englishman on Spanish television, were talking about him. It's it's absolutely amazing story in terms of uh, journalism and uh, Spanish uh, television. Well, we're joined now from Brussels by Gabriel Ruiz. He's currently part of their European team at Leeds United, but worked alongside Michael Robinson for 23 years until 2016. And how did that come about, Gabby? Uh, okay, hi to everyone. It, it's a, a bit of a long story, but uh, I will I will do it very brief. Uh, I met him because uh, before working for the television, I used to do with the firm I worked for, video game from football. The name was PC Football. We actually did the version for, for English football as well. And it was very popular in Spain, that video game. And uh, we decided at the beginning of that adventure, we decided in, in my firm with my brothers to hire Michael Robinson because he was already quite popular in Spain. Our project was in the beginning and we decided we needed uh, a good image for our project. We called him to hire him and was, everything was very, very easy with him because he was a very easygoing person, very nice person. And uh, we hired him for many years in PC football, and I, I, I got to meet him. And then I went to work with him because he helped me to change and start working for the for the television. So we met because of a video game, and then we worked many years in the television. 
And how was it that you then came to work alongside him? Did he hire you or was it something else a little bit more mutual? I never knew because uh, Michael never told me. And it was uh, one of his uh, characteristics as a person just to praise. I was very young and he probably helped me to start working for Canal Plus for the television, which was and, and is still now the most prestigious television in, in Spain. Probably he helped me, but he never told me. So one day I started to collaborate with them. And I'm sure that Michael was behind that uh, decision of Canal Plus, but he never told me. <laughs> so I, I really don't know. Being in Ireland, he, he played for Ireland for many years. He was well known here. But I think it's fair to say in Spain, like, he was ultra famous. He was perhaps the, one of the best known people on television. Yes, he, he was. But something very important to say about him. He was popular in Spain because of football, but he managed to become popular between people who didn't love football. And that is very important about him. Everyone loved him in Spain. Uh, And I think this is something very important to remark. The idea of hiring Michael Robinson for our PC football was not mine. I'm a, I'm a crazy guy about football. I have all my life been. But the idea was from my brother. My brother doesn't like football at all. He's the typical person that he barely knows how many players there are in a game, in a team. That means that Michael had trespassed clearly the line uh, of the football fans to become popular everywhere, to, to everyone. So he was very, very popular also because... Of course, because of his way of speaking Spanish, that was a bit fun in some aspects, but he became popular in a general level. And that is something very important to say about him, because he was a person with an empathy, with, uh, with a charisma, and w- with a flair. It, it's di- difficult to describe, but he was a special person, and he trespassed clearly the line between football fans and the rest of the people. What was he like to work alongside in television? It was... a. Uh, a beautiful experience because of everything. In, in personal terms, I can say that working with Michael was uh, very easy because he was a nice person from the very first minute in the morning when we all w- were tired. And many times we came from a long trip the day before and on Monday morning we had the meeting to organize and to establish how, how we wanted to do our program. We, we did a program every Saturday and every Monday. On Saturday, we talk about, it was like a build-up of, of, the, of the day, of the football day. And on Monday, it was like a review. We were many, many hours together. And he was always uh, nice to everyone. But the most important about him was how creative he was. He was a former footballer, but he established a style to do television in Spain. I mean, that is something amazing because he was not a journalist or he he had no experience in his life before coming to Spain in the television. He was a a footballer that came to Spain to play his last years as a professional. And when he retired, he became a TV star, but not only because he knew a lot about football and he was a great pundit, also because he had amazing capacity uh, amazing sensibility for television. And that is something that he talked to us. He talked for many, many years. He was a teacher for us about st- 
style in television, what to do, what not to do, and he made a TV program that had records of audience in Spain. It is something really amazing about him. But it strikes me as well that born in England, grew up in England, moved to Spain towards the end of his playing career, hadn't a word of Spanish when he arrived. What was it about him that was able to tap into the Spanish psyche to provide a style of television coverage that was perfect for the Spanish people that had not been seen previously? What's in the bottom of that? It's difficult to seek to know. It's difficult to say. First of all, maybe that he fell in love with Spain from the very first minute he came to our country. And that means that he very, very quickly connected with us, with the Spanish people. He had a, a personality very similar to Spanish. And he really fell in love. And he has said many times in many interviews that he fell in love, especially with the city of Cadiz in the south. But he fell in love also with Pamplona, the city of his team, Osasuna, that has absolutely nothing to do with Cadiz. The, the fact that he fell in love with the most two different cities in Spain means that, that he actually was in love with all our country, with our culture, with our food, with our style of life, means that he understood our mentality. And that is the key, in my opinion. He understood our mentality and he learned and understood very quickly how we wanted to be told stories about football in television. And this is very important. He had an amazing sensibility. He was one of the most sensible persons I have ever met in my life. So I think that the addition of all these aspects I have been telling is probably the key to answer your question. But it interests me as well that as a former sports person, he then went on to front a sort of a sports interview series as well as the, the TV coverage, the match coverage, and the commentary that he did. A lot of former sports people do go into the media these days, but normally yeah. they are the experts. But with him, there was a journalistic sensibility as well, which is very unusual. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's the most unusual. I, uh, you said it perfectly. Journalistic uh, mentality. I don't know how to explain this, but... I have been for 20 years in sitting in front of him in meetings with 10, 12, 15 persons talking about football and about television with a lot of journalists in the meeting room. Myself, I'm, I'm a journalist and a lot of journalists with a lot of experience in television. But when we did the meetings, uh, the opinion of Michael was the most important. He was the director and not by chance. He had a leadership with his style, of course. He, he never shouted or never imposed anything in a rude way. He always was calm and always was laughing and joking with the typical British flema, with the typical British style of joking, you know. When, when he talked, everybody listened. And that is something, in my opinion, that you, it's a talent. You can be born with it or without. And he was born with that talent. He had the sensibility to understand what we have to do with every footage of football that we took to him and we showed to him every Monday morning. We traveled around Spain in the, in the weekend, a lot of journalists with a camera. And on Monday morning, we met all together to show him what we had recorded, what was our footage, 
the story we wanted to tell. I can swear, I can swear. He always knew what to do with every story, how we should treat that story, the angle we should make the interpretation of the story. It was incredible, but he had that talent, and I'm sure that he was born with that talent. See, it's interesting because when me and Demetra were talking earlier, and I've also spoken to Rob Palmer from Sky Sports, who provided the British TV coverage, and they were in Spain quite often, and they met Michael Robinson nearly every time. And like they say the same thing, just as what you've said, is that you would go to a game, there's an obvious story there, but a lot mm-hmm. of the time he was more interested in the other story, the non-obvious one, that would actually yeah. be more interesting. And there was a talent in order to draw that story out and to direct exactly. his journalists to do that. So, absolutely. And, and, and here we have another key element, in my opinion, that was the freedom. He was a person that trusts 100% all of us. And he never, not only once, he told me, Gabi, you are going to, I don't know, uh, Valencia, Real Madrid. Be careful with this possible story. Uh, be careful with... Never. Not only once in 20 years, he told us what we should do. He trusts us that Kio, uh, in his personality, his capacity to trust the people that he considered that we were ready for that uh, work. Many times we felt that freedom and used that freedom to uh, go to a stadium and search for the most crazy story you can imagine. And we were sure and we knew that there was no risk with Michael. We could take risk to show him something different. He always appreciated when you went to him with a story and you offered to him a different story. Sometimes having to do with the fans, sometimes having to do the second coach, sometimes someone outside the stadium. Everyone was possible. And that's how he built his charisma and his capacity to to run that TV program. The freedom that all of us had and we took risk for him and he did well in trusting us. And finally for me, you're obviously very busy. You've got a strategical role with Leeds United. You're in Brussels at the moment. When's the last time that you actually would have seen Michael, met him? It's uh, a bit of years ago because I left Canal Plus in 2016. I went, I started working for Middlesbrough, then uh, Leeds United. And last time I saw him, I met him was in 2016. In that moment, we can say that our lives uh, took different paths, but uh, he remains a friend of mine forever and in my heart. And uh, he's someone I will never forget, never ever forget in my life. I, I just remember when Michael was doing the commentary and they were presenting his colleagues from El Dia Después found this video when he was still a player for Brighton and he gave interview to BBC probably most likely BBC or ITV and he was saying there oh you know I don't really like watching football in my spare time and he was 20 something at the time and they showed it live on air and he was watching it and the very first immediate reaction he was like I will investigate who found this video <laughs> and I'll punish him. And I think it just tells you everything about him because the, the sense of humor that Gabby mentioned and the 
path that he has taken. Because probably, yes, as a professional footballer, he wasn't that much into telling stories, not even into listening stories. But then when he came to Spain, when he started working in television, the change happened. And that's one of the most exciting changes you could see in a professional athlete becoming a journalist. Because honestly, I don't think anyone or any show we, can, we were talking here about Informer Robinson more than Elias Pues because I couldn't see him in Elias Pues. When I started watching it, they had different presenters. But Informer Robinson was probably the, the sports show that made me cry more than any other program. Yeah. Yeah, and I can, I can tell you, Dimitro, because I also worked for Informer Robinson. And I, ha I did uh, some years ago some of the documentaries that Informer Robinson makes uh, every month in Spain. And I share with him also many hours in a TV show because I used to be a pundit. For instance, in the 2006 World Cup, we were together in a TV show for 35 days in a row. The most important thing about him out of the pitch when he left football, he was a genius. He was magic at telling stories. And not only in the television, face to face, he was amazing telling stories of his entire life and he had you can imagine how many stories he had from many years in liverpool football club and he won the european cup he won the world cup in tokyo he played for ireland i mean he had thousands of stories he told the stories in the perfect way even if he was a bit like me that uh, i i don't always find the, the correct word to say in english he had the same problem in Spanish, but he was magic telling stories. And that is a talent that he, in my opinion, carried with him to the perfection. Gabby, it's been wonderful to talk to you. Thanks. Thanks very, very much for that. Uh, Dimitro, because he was working at Liverpool Atletico, which was you know, the second last day of Champions League football that we've had, he was working pretty much right up until the end. Well, one of his colleagues, Monica Marchante, wrote after his uh, death that he said, I know that cancer will kill me, but I will not allow the cancer to kill each and every day of my life. And that's how it was. He had an incredible sense of humor. And when he was making some mistakes in Spanish, which is natural, of course, he was a foreigner, he was laughing. He was the first one to laugh about them. He was laughing about them more than anybody else. He was diagnosed with cancer in October 2018, I think. You would never, ever imagine that this was a guy who was dying from cancer because he was he was commentating up until yeah that came at Anfield and also in Spain he was also doing the main game of the week so it's going to be Real Madrid or Barcelona playing someone for, for many years an Englishman was the main commentator on Spanish television and they loved his accent they loved his uh, phrases he was coming up with it's really absolutely unbelievable how he did that for so long, being terminally ill and still making people laugh and laughing himself. How, how did he manage to endear himself to the Spanish media, to the Spanish public that, that just made him so loved? Because we are talking about the number one Spanish football broadcaster in the number one Spanish sport. I think that's because he was always open he always tried to learn. He even said that actually, well, he was he was probably adopted Spaniards and he, he loved Cadiz 
you love Cardiff a lot. And uh, the thing is, it's something that not too many people have when they move abroad. He wanted to be a part of that country and, and their culture and their language. And also, it's very important that Leonis Poyas, when, when it started as a football show in Spain, it was really different. It wasn't talking about tactics that much. They did, of course, but it wasn't the main point. And he had this eye for something unusual. So he would pick people, journalists, young journalists at the time, and send them to different stadiums. And he would tell them to look for something special. And then they would come back and say, okay, we have this, we have that. And he would be doing that show from that point of view. It had to be a bit more than football. You know, you have to go inside of it. You have to find something. You have to find something that probably at the first sight doesn't even relate to a game you were at, but then somehow it connects. And that's what he did really well. And as his Spanish was getting better, he, he could tell something and people would be seeing a person capable of putting words together in a foreign language, which was difficult for him at first because he, well, he admitted that. And I think it's a typical situation. Stefan must know that it's also a professional player. The, the very first words you learn in a foreign language are not the best words. And that was the case with him. He turned out to be one of the best Spanish language speakers of all the foreigners who were part of the Spanish television for the last 30 years. In France, you know, we remember him uh, from 1981, the uh, World Cup qualifier at, in Lansdowne Road, uh, Ireland beat France 3-2, even France qualified for Spain 1982. He scored the, the winning goal against France. And I know he scored four goals for Ireland. They keep... Um, wrote an article about him and saying like, um, it was interesting, he started his career as a Canal Plus. I think we talked about it, you know, before, but it's very unusual to see uh, in the 80s uh, a player from England moving to Spain. It's very, very unusual, especially to play for Sasuna, which which is not the top club in Spain. And it's an unbelievable story, as Mitro mentioned, that he became one of the um, most recognized figures in the uh, media landscape in Spain. It's it's quite a remarkable story. And and we have to remember as well, with Liverpool, he only spent one season and won the Champions League. Unbelievable. Yeah, because in terms of that game against France, the goals were on the news uh, during the week. And he had set up the first, which was an own goal, a brilliant Maisie run down the right-hand side. Great cross. Stapleton went in, but it rebounded for the opening goal. France equalised, made it 1-1. Stapleton scored again. Robinson got a glorious third. This was before half-time. Ireland were 3-1 up in France at half-time at an absolutely crammed Lansdowne Road. It was one of those games that perhaps was the peak of the own hand era. I think you look back, you realise how unlucky he was, how close Ireland came to qualifying a couple of times for World Cups. We've mentioned previously how things ended on a low. There was the 4-1 home loss to Denmark. There was the 2-0 loss away to the Soviet Union. I have to say, I think Ireland probably played much, much better football on their own hand than they did under Jack Charlton. But of course, Big Jack got the results. People remember that era with such fondness, and we'll be coming to that a lot more later. But unfortunately for the likes of Michael Robinson, Liam Brady, to an extent David O'Leary, they became victims of the 
of the Jack Charlton style of play. Own hands allowed them play. It was about good football. But, Mark, history changed a lot in 1986. And, you know, Ireland's progressed in a different direction. And, and he was left behind, unfortunately. Yeah, unfortunately, because um, you mentioned that France game. I talked to some of the French players for a piece that played in that match and they said the atmosphere was like pretty much nothing they'd experienced before, a cauldron. And they said the crowd won that game against the French team that would go on, you know, to reach the World Cup semi-finals, win Euro 84. We finished level on points with them. Obviously, Michael Robinson, a big part of that team. Brilliant run for the first goal. Big moments for that uh, third goal. And uh, even Michel Platini with a goal. Late on, couldn't um, get France back into it. He also, another goal they showed in reporting on his passing was uh, Mickey Walsh against the Soviet Union back in September 84. Similar run to that first goal for um, the France game where he just went from halfway, head down, and uh, just couldn't be stopped. So a player with a lot of talent and, you know, a hat-trick for Liverpool against West Ham as well. Obviously would have been a huge moment for him. He won three trophies in that one season with Liverpool, who were obviously the uh, best team in Europe at the time and the team apparently he supported as well. So uh, a great career as a player, FA Cup final as well, before having this, you know, second life in Spain as a a commentator, which was uh, amazing, really. Um... You know, the El País headline talked about a revolutionary in communication. A footballer and a revolutionary in communication gives you an idea of the impact he had. Two things, I guess, I noticed that just tell you about the man as well. He just seems to have been such a a warm man, as uh, Sid Lowe, the Guardian correspondent, said in his piece. Big hearts, love telling stories. Um, You couldn't meet him for lunch and get back before dinner because he'd tell stories, but he'd listen to you as well, you know. And... um, Again, to give an idea of the impact he had, I suppose Seve Ballesteros, a huge figure in this part of the world during the uh, during the 80s in, in golf. Uh, Graham Souness told a great story on Sky during the week about how Michael Robinson rang him up one time and was delighted. He said he was walking through Madrid. Ballesteros got asked for an autograph once and Michael Robinson got asked for an autograph half a dozen times, you know. And again, that just tells you how uh, well-respected and loved he was. Yeah, that reminds me a lot of my days working with Brian Kerr on League of Ireland matches and you'd be walking down the street with him and that's it, you'd be stopped at least a dozen times. That Ireland-Soviet Union game, actually, I think it was around September, October 84. It is the very, very, very first Ireland international I remember watching live. And the thing about Michael Robinson as well is that obviously he had this magnificent career in Spain, but in the very early days of Satanta Ireland, he was brought over to... Uh, do a few of the early Champions League seasons there and Ireland's away internationals they had the rights to for a little while. And the analysis that he gave was quite interesting because it wasn't just about players on the pitch, but he was able to give a lot of background about what was happening in the Spanish clubs at the time, which very, very few former players, very few experts full stop are able to do. And just listening to him, it must have been the Champions League. I never worked on the away Ireland internationals. It must have been the Champions League nights that I was in. Just listening to him was mesmerising because there was this flow of relevant information. And just when he spoke, you paid attention. Um, I think what had happened was for those couple of seasons, 
Canal Plus must have lost the Champions League rights at the time, but then they got them back and then he didn't do anything for Satanta again after that, sadly. But he was certainly an asset to their opening seasons of the Champions League. And I guess the thing as well about his days at Liverpool is that he came in around 83. David Fairclough, the original super sub, had left. And this was back in the days when there was only one substitute on the bench. Only one change could be made during a game. And unfortunately, I think for him, that's largely the role he fulfilled. Joe Fagan then sent him to a really talented QPR side. I mean, that was a great team. You had the likes of Terry Fenwick there at the time. On occasion, they were London's top club. Tottenham and Arsenal were in transition. Really talented side. I mean, four Wembley appearances in four seasons at a time when it wasn't something that was majorly achievable. And I know as well, Dimitro, the tributes have been very strong in the past couple of days since his passing. It's uh, really incredible how many good words you can say about a person after so many years of his career. And I think... It also reminds of how important it is to try to do things you want to do before it's too late. Because honestly, I, I, I did want to do an interview with him. You know, I was thinking, OK, I want to go to Madrid. And since uh, I know someone who knows him, I probably could get a, at least an hour and talk to him. And well, that's it. Now, when it happens, you just realize, OK, there are people who are really precious and you, you you have to talk to them whenever you can. I guess the moral is you should never put these things off. Yeah, I want to add something to, um, obviously, the Michael Robinson story. It's nothing to do with Michael Robinson, but, you know, it, it took place, well, it took place in that game against Republic of Ireland against France when they won the 3-2. Uh, three, uh, three, it's it's it just a, it's a sad story, but during that game, there's two big players on the pitch, Liam Brady for Ireland, who was playing at the time for Juve, and Michel Platini, who was playing for Saint-Étienne. And a year later, Platini was going to sign for Juve, taking over basically uh, uh, Liam Brady's place at Juve, who was going to move to uh, uh, Sampdoria. To me, like it's a massive story in, ter- in terms of European football because Liam Brady was one, probably one of the best players in Ireland for the last you know 50 years, very creative and... Uh, and he was the uh, running force at Juve, and Platini was the upcoming number 10 player uh, in Europe with Maradona, it was around the corner as well. But it's it's interesting to see that, that however, between these two players facing each other in Lansdowne Road, and to me, like it's it's quite interesting from the perspective to see that uh, Platini a year later was taking Elian's Brady place uh, at Juve. I mean, the sad thing is, is that Liam Brady was the Serie A Football of the Year during that era. And it was before the time when we were able to see Serie A live in Ireland or, or the UK. He must have been sensational. I, I, don't, I don't feel like, I mean, again, from a foreign like, a view on Lambrady, I don't think he has been recognised as as he should have been. As a player, really, probably one of the most gifted players you have, in, you know, you have had in Ireland for the last, you know, definitely 50 years. I have no doubt about that. I mean, if we had one stroke of luck in Ireland, at least, is that we got to see Maradona's final few seasons on a weekly basis with Napoli before he left. Because by the time he'd left, after he'd left, then Football Italia started in the UK and, and they never got to see him. They got Hullet and Van Basten and Klinsman, but they never actually got Maradona, but we did. I have to ask you as well, I mean, as a... You were in the same position as Michael Robinson, of course, Stefan. You were a footballer, a young footballer from France who came to play in Ireland... 
Maybe with lots of English, maybe not. What was that like? Uh, at the beginning, it was very difficult because you don't speak the language. My English was uh, was very basic, uh, what you learn in school. And um, I remember my first training session, and uh, it was uh, extremely difficult to understand what you know you've been told. And um, I remember, you know, clearly there was a game, a Lipka games against Bohemian, and um, it was with Shelbourne, and we're playing against, at Dalyman Park, and uh, at halftime. Uh, Damien Richardson was asking me a, a question, was telling me something in the dressing rooms. And he asked me, uh, do you understand? I said, yeah, moving my head. Like, I said, yeah, yeah, of course. I couldn't understand a single word, you know, what he was saying. It's just, you know, the problem you're facing when you don't speak the language is just the pace of the game with the, 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 the information coming to you. And sometimes it's it takes time to adjust a different style of football, obviously. And... Um, but it was a great experience. And Mitro mentioned about the the first words, you know, you, you learn. Uh, yeah, obviously, they're bad words. <laughs> That's definitely the bad words and from uh, different players. But I won't mention the names, obviously. And uh, But, uh, you, you know, it's, it's, it's very challenging at the beginning. You have to adjust very quickly. And uh, But it takes time. And you have to be patient. And uh, if you're willing to immerse yourself, you can uh, you can improve your, well, your you know, the, whatever language it is uh, pretty quickly. Okay, and I would just have to ask you quickly as well, because obviously Michael Robinson, like most former players, went into commentary as a co-commentator. You, as a former player, unusually a lead commentator. How did you find that transition? I didn't find it you know, challenging. I thought it was quite natural to uh, talk football. If you have been doing that for a while, if you follow the uh, if you follow football, and it's a passion and you love it. And uh, I'm not saying it's natural. You need to get, you know, you know, commentary. I'm not saying it's a gift, but it's something can be can be taught as well. But you need to have something to be able to uh, do commentary. And uh, yeah, obviously the passion for, for the sport but uh, and for football, but also understanding if you want a game and sometimes going over the what you see on, on the, the pitch and... Uh, I didn't find it, you know, quite difficult to assist you. It was, I'm not saying it was natural path, but uh, it was uh, something enjoyable. And uh, look, I mean, it was a great experience. I would be able to transfer that into commentary, which is, which is, you know, pretty good luck. No, we should probably do a program on France, Ireland, 82. Though. Yeah, the, the, the whole campaign, because as I understand, Ireland were robbed by referees in Belgium yep. in, in a game in Brussels. So it was pre-Thierry Henry handball stuff. So I'll tell you one thing. If you, look at, if you look at the Irish team, they had some big, big players like Stapel, no, was, Ronnie Whelan, Mark yeah. Lawrenson. I and mean, if you look at the lineup, it's pretty impressive. Chris Hutton, I mean, Seamus McDonough, I mean, David Lorelli. I mean, there are really some very good players. Like Also passing this week, by the way, uh, Trevor Cherry, probably best known for his 10-year period with Leeds in the 70s. Signed as a central defender, but that first season there, having come from Huddersfield Town, played mainly at left back in place of Terry Cooper that first season. He played alongside and instead of Jack Charlton as a centre-half. Runners-up in the FA Cup in 1973, famously to Sunderland, but won the league in 74 under Don Revy, then the 44 days under Brian Clough before Jimmy Arnfield took charge, reached the European Cup final in 75, but beaten in controversial circumstances by Bayern Munich. He played 25 times for England and also featured in the European Championships in 1980, but England did not get out of the group stage. That was the first time it was played as a unified eight-team 
tournament. Norman Hunter, his former teammate, passing away a couple of weeks ago. Just going back to something we were mentioning earlier, that famous World Cup qualifier from 1981 where Ireland beat France, Michael Robinson, an absolute star of the show. That is going to be shown on RTE2 on the 28th of May alongside Ireland against Wales from 2017. And the following week, it'll be Ireland against the Netherlands from 2001. Lots of great retro football being shown at the moment. Uh, Coventry against Tottenham, the 1987 FA Cup final, being shown Saturday evening on ITV. And if I may put my own plug in, uh, the third level Colleges final, starting off with the Collingwood Cup final. They're going to be shown on TG Cahar on Saturday mornings, starting from next Saturday. It's a 10.30am slot, and that'll be the 9th of May. Well, TG Cahar kicked off their big retro slot on Friday night, a repeat of their 97-98 series World Cup gold. We Packy Bonner, a young version of Packy Bonner, presenting from a younger version of Dailyman Park. Ireland's first ever World Cup finals match. Ireland won England won goals from Gary Lineker early on for England. Kevin Sheedy late on for Ireland, which prompted the, I think it was the Gazetta della Sport headline the following day. No football, please. We're British. Or as they said, no football, please. We're English. Based on what Mark Kermo described the other week as the 1970s sex comedy that had neither sex nor comedy. And to be honest, watching it back, there was nothing terribly funny about that Ireland-England game either, was the gentleman? Well, I can tell you one thing. In 2006, uh, when Ukraine played Switzerland in the round of 16 the World Cup, people were saying it was one of the worst games ever being played in the World Cup. And do you think we cared? No, because we won it in the penalties and we went to the bloody quarterfinal of the World Cup. So I think for Ireland to get a draw in that game, two years later, after beating England, in the European Championship of 88 with a brilliant tiki-taka in the air goal, it was also good. I mean, you probably were expecting something like that, weren't you? Yeah, they were all players who knew each other, so that was part of the problem. And for me, watching it, uh, just thinking back to the context, there was that game two years previously, and then there was the pressure that England were undergoing into it. Um, Bobby Robson had been in charge for a very long time, didn't have a great relationship with the uh, press at that stage. Even though England hadn't conceded a goal in qualifying, they just about made it. The pressure would have been huge on them going into it. And then there was not so much pressure, but almost expectation on Ireland amongst the players themselves. You know, the Euro 88 was uh, a great occasion for them, but uh, this was uh, a chance to step up and prove it on, on the world stage as well. But again, it was the first ever World Cup game. It was played in horrible conditions, um, which didn't help. I was just uh, looking back on Brian Glanville's um, story of the the World Cup book. And he said, in truth, England and Ireland was a battle of the dinosaurs. Um, But there did seem to be, again, reading back, just a lot of uh, talk about Ireland being the team that were playing the long ball and that we somehow dragged England down to, uh, to our level. Both teams are at it, it seemed to me, in that game. And if anything, Ireland, you know, were on the front foot for more, for more in that game and probably could have won it as well. Well, actually, if you remember that group, even the Netherlands, European champions were there, there weren't too many goals in those games. So England beat Egypt 1-0, and then it was Ireland to the Netherlands, it was 1-1. So in all those games, 
It was something similar. Not too much football. Now, you have to remember about that group. It's never happened before or since. The first two games in the group, England, Ireland, Netherlands, Egypt, finished one all. So each team in the group, all four teams, were level on points. The second round of games, Ireland, Egypt, which mysteriously is not being broadcast by TG Karen next week, that finished nil-nil, and so then did England, Netherlands. So everybody was locked going into the final round of games. Then obviously you'd Ireland, Netherlands 1-1, which is being shown next week. And then England beat Egypt 1-0 to win the group. Obviously we've said before that it was the lowest scoring World Cup ever in terms of gold per game. It was the highest ratio of penalty shootouts up to that point. Uh, that France-Brazil uh, match 1986, which we're featuring in an upcoming episode, even though we recorded it weeks ago, um, that was only the second ever penalty shootout in World Cup history, and th- um, that was only four years previously. The thing which I remember going into that tournament is there was this strange atmosphere in the Irish media, feeling that the English squad wasn't very good. Now, sure enough, they'd lost all three games in Euro 88, had lost to Ireland the opening match, had lost to the Netherlands 3-1, and then lost on the final day to the Soviet Union. And Bobby Robinson had worked very hard, had done really well to hold on to his job. But they'd gone through qualifying, sailed through along with Sweden and the qualifying group. And there was this thought in Ireland that, you know, Hoddle and Waddle weren't particularly good players. They were luxury players. They were lacking bottle. There were curious comments very early on in commentary last night about, you know, Peter Beardsley wasn't proving himself in an England shirt despite... You know, breaking through realistically at that level in the 86 World Cup and having that brilliant partnership with Gary Lineker where he laid so much on for Lineker. Lineker won the golden boot and came a goal away from doing the same then in Italy. I mean, Terry Butcher, who was playing regularly in Europe at that stage with Rangers and was very successful, winning lots of Scottish League titles and had been part of a very strong Ipswich Town side early in the 80s. There was there was criticism for him. It, it's, it's easy to forget at this stage, now that we know how well England had done, the quality of that squad, the quality of the players, what they ended up doing at club level, that there was a thought, certainly in Ireland, that the England squad really wasn't very good. They feared Lineker, but perhaps no one else. Well, but, but the thing is, the England didn't probably play really well during the group stage. That's the thing. Mm. And also about that World Cup, there are some things that still stand out until today. It had probably the best song ever, among all the World Cup uh, uh, theme songs, and it still had some games and performances that remain in memory. You have Cameroon and Roger Milla, uh, Colombia, even though Rene Guida made those mistakes against uh, Cameroon in the round of 16, Colombia had a good World Cup. England ended up playing the fantastic quarterfinal against Cameroon and a very tense and interesting semifinal against uh, West Germany. Argentina didn't start really well being world champions and they ended up playing the final even though it was just 1-0 against Brazil it was penalties against Yugoslavia penalties against uh, Italy in the semi-final so there were still some bits and pieces of football and the memories are still there even though yeah you can say well, it probably wasn't the best World Cup but yeah, there were some things to cherish about Italy 90 I think Yeah, in terms of the Ireland-England game, Mark, the thing which struck me was just how direct the football was. It was really long ball stuff from both teams. But, I mean, there's no doubt. We mentioned earlier about 
you know, the quality of football, the good quality of football that was played under own hand. Definitely it was a bit of an Irish trope at the time that there was quite a bit of a long ball stuff and that manifested itself in the equaliser, as it would do a week later. But, uh, I mean, Kevin Sheedy's equaliser, it came from a mistake and uh, originally a long punt forward by Packy Bonner. Yeah, well, it was interesting because um, Packy Bonner was grimacing right before that. Uh, and he explained afterwards, many years later, that he was apparently grimacing at Kevin Morn and Mick McCarthy coming to receive the ball short because Jack Charlton didn't want that. So, but it shows that the players wanted to play football at times. I thought Sheedy was brilliant in that game, um, deserved his goal. Uh, Steve McMahon, unlucky 13, on for his um, 13th cap to shore it up after Jack Charlton had changed things, bringing on Alan McLaughlin who'd only just got into the squad for uh, John Aldridge, switching formation. England responded to that, perhaps because Bobby Robson was under so much pressure from the press. He thought, we need to just hold on here and get a win. He made a defensive substitution. McMahon made the mistake that uh, cost them the goal, which is interesting in itself, because I think his father might have been from Ireland, if I'm not mistaken, and he certainly turned down a chance to play for Ireland under-21s in the past. But it was like watching a different sport in many ways. And you have to remember that the back pass rule came in very quickly after or very soon after that. And then there was uh, a clampdown on tackles from behind as well. And that's two things I noticed straight away in that game. You had midfielders in trouble or any semblance of trouble at all. They just knock it back to Shilton or Packy Bonner. And Paul Gascoigne absolutely cleaned out um, Kevin Sheedy about five minutes in. It would have been at least a yellow card uh, nowadays. And Ireland probably would have had a penalty in the first 10 minutes as well when uh, Ray Houghton was taken down by uh, Des Walker, which would have gone to video nowadays. I mean, there's no doubting that. And you mentioned Alan McLaughlin there, who was brought into the squad at the last minute. Gary Waddock had been out injured for a couple of years. His career was almost over. Now, he played alongside Michael Robinson in that great Keep Your Team of the mid-80s. He was set to be in the squad. He was fit. He was okay. He'd been playing football again that season. If I remember, he joined Millwall, who had a couple of great early seasons. They were Millwall were a top-six side in the top flight under, I think it was John Doherty in the first campaign there. And Waddock was all set to be in the squad for Italia 90. I thought, again, a decent, creative enough player and cut right at the end. And Alan McLaughlin brought in, again, as maybe has been a theme today, a little bit of the ruthlessness of Jack Charlton as an international manager. Well, I think you have to look at the overall picture. Um, in 1990, I mean, look at you know obviously the uh, the English uh, team, but also Ireland, Scott, you know, and and some of the Scottish players were at the time playing, you know, in England. And uh, if you remember, uh, before the World Cup, all the English clubs were banned to play in Europe following the, uh, the Champions League final against Juve in uh, in Belgium in the uh, uh, in Ezel. But so it just reflects the quality, in fact, of the display on the pitch. Because those teams were playing very conservative football. They were playing against each other in England. There was no teams in England, for example, or Irish players playing in England, having campaign in Europe, playing against uh, top top clubs in Europe. And uh, I think it's a reflection of the style of football in the World Cup. I'm talking about the English uh, game and the Irish game. Uh, to be very direct, very conservative, lack of ideas. I don't think at the time the Premier League in England uh, was very creative. And the players, if you look at the type of players are producing I know we talk about, you know, Gascon and so on, but, you know, Wada was playing in front at the time with Marseille, but 
the old picture of the uh, Premier League in England was very, very conservative, very direct and uh, pretty boring to watch. Like, Yeah, and I'd say as well, Will, you mentioned the, the England team being played down. Maybe there's two reasons for that. Ireland beat them. Ireland had really good players as well. But then it's, I guess, based on results as well. I think England were one defeat in 19 coming in, but they hadn't they'd drawn a lot of games. A, a poor run-up with a, a game against friendly game against Tunisia as well. And that really struck me watching it as well. John Barnes barely touched the ball. Uh, Chris Waddle had one great run, possibly should have got a penalty in the second half, made the goal obviously as well. Then you have Gascoigne, three really creative players. And what England served up in the end was was pretty poor. And the, the headlines, great book uh, for anyone who wants to read about England's World Cup campaign or sport, a sporting book in general. It's brilliant, all played out. Um, just looking back on that last night, the English headlines afterwards, after that result, England in a shambles, Bobby's bunglers, artless, charmless, worthless. And this was a reference to the long ball game, which I guess may be more directed at Ireland, but at that stage could have easily been directed at England as well. David Lacey in The Guardian said, when it's the Egyptians' turn, they may think back nostalgically to the days when all that afflicted them from the heavens were frogs. Now, it's worth pointing out as well, this was at a period when there was a major tabloid battle. The back pages were quite vociferous against Bobby Robson. I think I'll be quite blunt. In England, there was very little knowledge of the overseas game. A little bit of knowledge about France, Spain, Germany, Italy. They knew nothing about anywhere else. It, it wasn't shown on TV. There was no internet. There was no, there was no knowledge. End of story. So they'd had a match earlier in the campaign where that back page headline, I think in the mirror, was go in the name of God, go. And then in a reference to the former, the last king of Albania, when England scope a 2-1 away win there, 1989, still the communist era in Tirana, a different world away from what the England players would have been used to. They won 2-1, but the headline was still go in the name of Zog. Bobby Robson was not very popular with the English papers and it was almost as if they were having a competition for the wildest headline against him. I know Bobby Robson these days, you think about him, he is greatly venerated, he brought England to quarterfinals and semifinals of respective World Cups and then a great success as a club manager, PSV Eindhoven, uh, Porto, Barcelona and so on and then back in England with Newcastle. But definitely going into that 1990 World Cup, he was unpopular largely in England. It had been leaked as well in advance that he was going to leave England at the end of that tournament and would go and play for PSV Eindhoven, a new order who had produced England's World Cup single. As a result of that, I don't know how they did it, taking Bobby Robson's voice off the record. I'm, I'm not entirely certain that's true, but it's what they said. I think we do forget how unpopular England were in England going to that tournament and also off the back of... 10, 15 years of crowd trouble, there was a thought in England that, you know, football hadn't been the most popular game. We didn't realise it, but football was on the way back in the country at the time because so many things happened at once. Arsenal winning the league title in the last minute the year before, those 1990 FA Cup semi-finals, the club game was suddenly becoming popular, the Premier League was on the way, and even though we didn't know at the time, England were on the way to the semi-finals of the World Cup. Yeah, but they're still on the. Uh, if you look at 1986, they still went to the quarterfinal, losing in Argentina in the two-one, uh, but uh, and starting really well the campaign in 1986 against France. Again, you know what struck me in 1990 is just you know the um, 
the quality of football generally again, especially for that game, you know, England is in Ireland and uh, I know there's a dispute in Ireland saying that Jackie Charlton could have played a different brand of football because he had, you know, some very good players in the team. We'll never know that, but uh, do you think playing a more passing uh, football, would you have, Ireland would have better results, would have gone, you know, far in the competition? I think it was a simple game, but very efficient, and uh, and probably Ireland uh, did extremely well, and maybe you know did even better than people thought at the time. It's interesting to say because that England Ireland match pretty much matched a lot of the quality of that tournament. Even though you still had Maradona in his pomp, France didn't qualify. West Germany had a brilliant team, but their football was efficient more than the more fluid style that we'd come to see let's say from 2006 onwards but the question is like do you think Ireland had the ability you know to play a different type of football at the time because if you look at the players yeah there were some very good players on the team but is that is that style set up by Jackie Charlton suited that team in fact better than you know trying to play the game as it should be played okay here's your vicious circle own hand, for example, had a great squad in their prime. Liam Brady, Michael Robinson, uh, Frank Stapleton, who was you know prolific in the top division in England for 15 years with Arsenal, Manchester United, won lots of trophies there, but no leagues. Went on to play for Ajax, play for Anderlecht. So he was he was a terrific striker. Niall Quinn was coming through. Cascarino was reasonably prolific in the top divisions in England and Scotland. Own hand had tried it, but hadn't got Ireland to a World Cup. Jack Charlton had a different style, had his game plan, got Ireland to tournaments. Ireland were in Euro 88, were nine minutes away from a freak Vim Keith goal from reaching the semi-finals and obviously ended up reaching the quarterfinals for that World Cup. So you will say with Jack Charlton, the ends justified the means, whether you liked it or not. And I mean, these games may not have been brilliant football matches, but they're still on TV 30 years on. I think yeah. he captured the uh, Irish Irish mind, and uh, but if you look at this, the, the team, it's a very physical team. John Aldridge, Niall Quinn, Tony Cascarino on the bench. If I look at you know the games against Netherlands, I mean he was set up for long balls, regardless you know what people are saying, and uh, and could have played a different way. I don't know. I'm not sure about that. Well, I was watching back, looking at the likes of Paul McGrath and what a classy player he was. Um, to me, it was just the way football was played at the time. If you think of that World Cup, all the teams that played negatively, the, you know, Brazil went that way. It was just a, a bit of a shift towards that way of football, maybe. Owen Hand was really unlucky. And I think the thing with Jack Charlton's Ireland, we always talk about the famous game at Wembley in Euro 92 qualifying when it seemed like the players took over and expressed themselves and really should have won that game very, very comfortably. That's been shown a few times. And that was potentially our, our best side that didn't make Euro 92. And you could say a similar thing happened in uh, the uh, World Cup 2010 qualifiers in the playoff against France when we played so well at the Stade de France in the second leg, really expressed ourselves and, and showed that those players could do a bit more than just just set up to um, make life as awkward as possible for other teams. But again, it worked for Charlton and I think it was the way a lot of teams were playing at the time. 
Well, I think you embedded as well into the uh, English club's culture that uh, at the time we were playing, you know, obviously negative football, long balls. And if you look at, I mean, from a French perspective, if you look at in the uh, 80s and 90s playing in English clubs, you say, right, yeah, obviously it's going to be a challenge physically. There are good good players in the air and that's going to be uh, difficult to contain it, you know, that, that way. But the that's a, the problem. It's a different style of, of football and it's down to the culture and uh and uh, and obviously, Irish players moving to England have been immersed into that uh, style of play. And presumably, Jackie Charlton looking at you know his his, his players, yeah, they're playing you know, in England. And I'm going to continue that that kind of tactical game. They get you know playing long balls, looking for a striker, bringing you know danger straight away in the opposite side. Uh, I know it's a simple game, but he was very efficient. But I think it's just a continuity of what he was doing, what what was happening in England, uh, going to Ireland. And obviously, one of the most successful uh, era in Ireland with Jackie Charlton, regardless, you know, the uh, the, the style of, of football. That's always been our problem, that we're too influenced by English football, I think. But it's interesting now we're talking about, you know, footballing tradition in Ireland and we want to get back. We don't talk about we should be qualifying for tournaments like Jack Charlton's team did. We talk about, you know, we can't play long ball football anymore. The game has moved on. But we did play good football under own hand and before that John Giles would always talk about Eamon Dunphy that we did pass the ball around that was our tradition um, back in the day so you know whether we can get back to that or, or not I don't know but um, w- one thing I would say as well the, the Jack Charlton was a, moder- a modern manager in one sense in that he was all about getting the ball into the opposition half and winning it high up the pitch and scoring from there which is exactly what happened with uh, Steve McMahon losing the ball, two players, Sheedy and uh, was it Townsend, closed him down, won it back, Ireland scored, which is, you know, it's 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 what a, a lot of managers talk about nowadays is the, the Gagan pressing of Jurgen Klopp in German football, you know, win the ball back and the majority of goals are, are scored within seven seconds of a team winning the ball back and that's, in that sense, Charlton was uh, modern, I guess. Yeah, I, I mean, I know what you're saying, Mark, but I guess, you know, we're talking about transition football and it was not really transition football because it's high pricing. Yes, I mean, we're talking about, you know, pricing, but it was more or less uh, a very, like, straightforward game. You know, the, you get the ball from, uh, the ball we start from uh, Paki Bonner and it was a long ball straight to the striker. And after that, you, you expect the, the, the ball to bounce back to, to Ray Houghton or whoever was around and, and, and then create something. If you look at you know, the old picture, Jackie Charlton, I think utilized you know his style of play with the players he had in on hand. Could I play different, you know, di- differently? I don't know about that because I'm looking at the team. It's still a physical, you know, you still have players who can play, Ray Hutton and Andy Townsend. But you know, John Aldridge now could the front. I'm not going to say like you know they all like you know the Diamond Duff or Ruby King of football. They were like you know good players at the time, but they don't have the same skill set. That you know, Damien Duff and Robbie Keane show, like for example, against France in Paris, which you know t- completely turned apart the, the French de- defense. So, I mean, we talk about Pierre Monkowski, we, we met you know with Mark in Paris uh, last year. He was very impressed, but you know, um, uh, Robbie Keane, Robbie Keane to him was a, a super player. He couldn't understand why he hasn't achieved even more at the club level, and uh, he was a gifted player, but didn't seem that he could have. Being you know one of the regular players in the top clubs in England, like Liverpool or or or, or Tottenham, whatever he played for, but uh, to the 1990 World Cup, I think I think uh, I'm not defending you know um, uh, the the manager Jackie Charlton, but in his mind 
that was, you know, the way to win the game with the Irish team, with John Aldridge or Nile Quinn, whoever, or Tony Casker at the front, and, and, and deliver results. And that's what it was. There's a couple of things um, also worth touching on. I'd actually forgotten the weather was so bad that night, actually. There was a massive deluge early in the second half, and it was played in Cagliari on Sardinia because England had a massive reputation for trouble amongst their travelling supporters back then but also it's worth pointing out that England scored early through a long ball over the top Gary Lineker had managed to find a way between Mick McCarthy and Packy Bonner slotted it in first of his five goals of that World Cup having got six of the previous one England liked to mix it up a little bit that way too yeah I think that's a bit harsh calling the uh, Chris Waddle ball through a, a long ball but they, they did they played plenty of, of long stuff was that because Ireland forced them into it I think that's too easy an excuse but again, watching it and thinking about tournaments that Ireland have qualified for, and we always say, oh, we haven't qualified for tournaments, how did we not make it? Until Euro 2016, which is, which was expanded, we always qualified for tournaments when we had a great team. And the last World Cup we qualified for, 2002, you had Robbie Keane, Damien Duff, Shea Given, Roy Keane got us there. I think he had six Premier League captains. They mightn't have all been playing for the the top teams, but they were all playing regularly and in senior positions at Premier League clubs. Again, 1990, we, we had a really, really strong squad and that's why we made it there. Well, we're done for another edition, but we'll come back in the next 48 hours to look at the situation in Ligue 1, which is now cancelled for the season and Paris Saint-Germain are the champions there. Thanks very much to Rob Palmer of Sky Sports and to Gabriel Ruiz, formerly of Canal Plus, for their memories of Michael Robinson. And thanks, as always, to Mark Rodden, Dimitri July and Stefan Johnny. I'm Will Downing, back soon with another edition. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.